In just a few seconds, we'll be talking with Ann Picconi of the Walter Elwood Museum on the latest podcast on The Historians. You can access these podcasts on my website, bobcudmore.com, SoundCloud, and The Historians also heard on RISE, WMHT's radio service for the blind and print disabled. A GoFundMe campaign continues to support the podcast. Please make a donation at GoFundMe.com slash The Historians or send a check to Bob Cutmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. The Historians Podcast, great stories from our past. And now, on with the show. We welcome Ann Picconi, Executive Director of the Walter Elwood Museum of the Mohawk Valley on Church Street in Amsterdam to the historians. Good afternoon, Ann. Good afternoon, Bob. Thanks for having me on. You certainly have quite a few stories to tell. Uh, many of the stories we've uh, heard have to do with the Walter Elwood Museum itself. And if we have time today, we'll get uh, get into that, the origin of the museum, uh, the past, uh, the surmounting of some tremendous difficulties to keep the uh, museum in operation. But I'd like to start uh, with you uh, with, in connection with a project that I've been working on, another a book about local history, which one of the stories will focus on the mill history of Amsterdam. And Amsterdam was a carpet city, and the Elwood Museum has uh, quite a collection of uh, photographs that were taken at the mill, I believe mainly uh, by the mills, uh, by the photographers employed by Mohawk Carpets and Bigelow Samford. And we, um, when you and I were picking out uh, images, uh, we were going through them together, and I thought you had some very uh, telling things to say about the women who worked uh, in the mills. And, and there were a lot of women who worked in the mills. There, there certainly was. And I think it's an interesting story about the women that worked in the mills because um, I know my own grandmother first told me the story before I even came to work for the mu- museum. And what she explained was that during World War One, when wo- World War One um, started, was probably one of the first times that the influx of women into the mills really began, um, to my understanding. And uh, that was because so many men were away at war, and there was a need for people to work. So that would have been in the 30s. Um, But I think we really see a lot of photographs um, in our collection that you and I viewed, Bob, that really show, you know, women in the mills in World War II um, and in World War I, um, what I like about the images is that so many times, and I think you and I saw that, is that, you know, you can r- learn a lot about these women from their dress, their jewelry, um, their demeanor, um, and um, it, it, it's quite interesting. Yeah. Well, there, there's one particular picture that I've always been uh, fond of. In fact, uh, when Steve Dunn and I did the a documentary on Amsterdam a long time ago now, 15 years ago. It became the symbol of the documentary. And we started calling the picture the Mill Girl. And after the documentary was produced, her family came forward, and I had an opportunity to speak with her. My understanding is she's still alive. Uh, Last I spoke with her was some years ago, a woman named Sue Frazek. And she was a twister. She was working. I mean, all these machines were so specific. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, they each had a story to them. And 
this machine she was on was twisting yarns together to form, I guess, a, a more substantial uh, yarn. But uh, what my uh, co-producer liked about it so much was that it was a real geometric sort of pattern, these uh, angles and triangles. And her her dress, she wore a bandana. And uh, she had kind of, I don't know if you'd call it like traditional garb. She was of uh, Polish descent. She was very, uh, a young woman, very attractive, but, you know, was very, I don't know, demure or something like that. She seemed She's to be She's the one with the knot tied modest. on her head, right? Kind of a knot tied in the front. And it's like yes. a colorful pattern. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And there, do you remember, I, Bob, the other picture? Um, I think it was used maybe in your um, in your in your film um, about the mills with the the girl standing mm-hmm. sideways, and she has a bracelet on her upper arm. Yes, yes. That and, is one of my favorite favorite photographs in the entire museum collection, um, and. Uh, I always made jokes about how she looked like she wanted to be in another place. <laughs> well, I think so. I in mean, another time. Yeah, it, it seemed like she was there. She was there under protest, but uh, and also she was wearing high heels. As I recall, she was. She was quite fashionable. Um, we do know that there were certain jobs in the mills that the women could have, and there were certain jobs that they couldn't have. Um, I don't have anybody who's ever told me a woman was a weaver. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to know if there ever was a woman that was a weaver. I don't believe that was the case. Well, let Many me, if I can interrupt women, you on that, I, I know you know Mark Toman, right? pronouncing that right, who's done a lot of work on the history of carpet making. He says today, where they still weave carpets, I mean, most carpet is not woven anymore. It's it's what they call tufted, but there are a few companies that weave it, including one called Bloomberg, I think, it's a city in Pennsylvania, and he says the weavers now are women uh, in, in general at uh, the, the new carpet mills. Well, my grandmother would tell me stories about the certain jobs that women could do. Women, um, she, her job was to be, the mills, uh, the looms we know were quite large, right, Bob? So they yep. were very, very large. So the weavers in the front with the, with the shuttle, where the shuttle is. And my grandmother worked way in the back, and she, her job was to tie when the spool was getting low, mm-hmm. there were many, many spools lined up in a variety of colors that set that pattern. And her job was to tie off the new spool. Mm-hmm. And it really was teamwork, because if she didn't tie off the spool and that spool went um, empty, it messed up the entire process. Oh, yeah. I believe that job would have been called being a creeler. Do you, you think creeler, that's Yes, yes, sir, yeah. it is. Because and, in his, um, uh, she had this for, little um, uh, knife that was around her finger. It was mm-hmm. like a little cutter. And it, it would cut one string, and then there was a certain way they were taught to tie, and then they would add the next spool in. And she said that weavers were quite mean men, <laughs> if you didn't do your job right. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, well, and also, I mean, I keep jumping in this, but this is something I heard from my father over the years, although I never went there. I never saw him weave carpet. He was indeed a weaver. Um, but those knots are called weaver's knots. They're made to be very small so they can pass through these little eye sockets uh, mm-hmm. in, the, in the looms. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and it's, 
Go ahead. No, and I just thought it was interesting, and I know that she had said it, people that work best as a team, the more carpet they produced. And That's true, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was very important. I know it was important to the weaver because the weaver was on piecework. And you hated to have, my, I just sort of remember my father's language about this. You hated to shut down. As you say, these women in general were tying the knots so that the loom could just keep going. But at some point, you couldn't and you had to shut down. And it's like any other kind of mechanical thing. Once you shut down, you're never quite sure it's going to start up again. Mm-hmm. Um, also about women, I don't know if you're interested in hearing this, I'll just mention it and see if you want to know more. You know, um, many of these women worked in the mills when they were sick. Many of them worked when they were pregnant. Mm -hmm. And um, they would try to hide those um, conditions from the bosses. And in the women of themselves, there was a tremendous amount of teamwork. They were given stools, um, and that was the only place they could sit except for when they were on their break. Um, and we know a stool doesn't have a back on it. It's not a very oh. comfortable seat. So what these crewlers would do is if a woman was ill or with child, not feeling well, they would cover for each other. Mm-hmm. They'd let the woman go lay down, typically on a, the wooden factory floor with her coat, and mm-hmm. they would cover her tying because over time they got so good at watching these spools. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I thought that that was kind of um, a camaraderie thing that developed over time. Now, I, I know that it's funny, my, not funny, but uh, it's interesting. I think my father went to work at Mohawk toward the end of the Depression, and he didn't start out weaving. He may have been a creeler himself uh, or a, what they called a spare hand that ultimately became a weaver. But before he did that, he was some sort of straw boss or foreman for the Creelers, and I remember when I was a kid, it seemed my father knew every woman in town, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> they all knew him. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That's interesting. I do remember my grandmother talking about the mills were very, very cold in the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, they had to wear coats and hats, and um, they, you know, they didn't sell fingerless gloves, so they would cut their gloves, mm-hmm. um, so their ends of their fingers were loose to tie the knot. Um, and she did talk about the extreme heat in the mills in the summertime um, and the lack of ventilation. And, but she did say that there were, there were many, many fans so that helped um, ease the heat a little bit. Well, speaking with uh, Sue Frazik, the person pictured in that one shot from the uh, Elwood uh, Museum, uh, she emphasized how hot it was, you know, probably in the summer, and noisy. And in fact, she didn't, you know, particularly like it. It was something she did because the family needed money, and so she went to work. And as happened with a lot of people who I think worked in Amsterdam when it went through this process of deindustrialization, she was working a uh, spinning or tying machine at Bigelow Sanford. Bigelow Sanford moved out in 1955, so she got a similar job at Mohawk, Mohasco. But then they moved out. And then she got a job. She, she kind of left the, the machines that are tying yarn together, and she got a sewing job, but still in the, in the textile field. But um, and I remember my Aunt Vera, who didn't work in the carpet business, but she worked in the glove factories. Um, she, she always said she closed down every place she worked for. Oh, she closed it down. That's a great way to say it. I also know women were very um, 
much used in the finishing of a rug um, and the end of the process they lay the rug out in the warehouse and the women would go through the entire rug and look for any imperfections mm-hmm. or any little strings or if you remember older rugs along the edge of the rug there would be a fringe um, my grandmother said it was mainly only the women and they actually sat on the factory floor and that's how they worked and went around the entire rug either uh, sewing the fringe ends on or other ones had a different job where they would go through the entire rug looking for a longer thread either with a scissors or to sew something back in and repair an imperfection I thought it was interesting how meticulous both all of the mills were about the quality of the rugs that they sent out Mm-hmm. And these, the workers in the factory were, as you say, very um, sensitive to that or something like that. Like I remember you know, being with my father and they say we'd walk into a room that was carpeted and he'd say something like, look at that. And he would point to the floor. I said, look at what? <laughs> you know, he'd see some mm-hmm. sort of, um, you know, minor imperfection that, you know, obviously wouldn't have passed muster on his loom. I think that there was an incredible amount of pride in the product that they produced, um, and which I don't, I don't know if we see that so much today, or we're um, we're affected by you know that kind of way of thinking so much today. Unfortunately, there was a um, a huge sense of pride, and um, I think in every rug. And then we know that um, we know that a rug was. Rugs were made for Calvin Coolidge's house, uh, summer home in Vermont. Um, we know about many, many hotels and theaters in New York City um, mm-hmm. that rugs were made for. And I think when they had a project like that to complete, um, the desire for perfection and quality even increased even higher mm-hmm. because they felt kind of a personal connection with the person who was getting or the place that was receiving the rug. Mm-hmm. And uh, the carpet business employed a certain number of artists, I mean, who designed the rugs and you know, designed the patterns uh, for, the, uh, for the rugs. It was, um, they were not only making industrial products, but they had to be beautiful products, really. We have art from Bessie Hill Bohall. And my understanding and what I've read in the museum files is that she was a designer for Mohawk carpets. Um, And originally most of the carpet designers, which actually uh, worked in the art department, where they actually painted the design of the rug on large, large drafting tables. Mm -hmm. And then that image of their painting went to um if it was the wilton right bob it went to then be almost blocked out so it could be punched out into a pattern to take yes, it from out the art piece uh, cards, to, yeah. to the um pattern maker person um i know a lot of women also had that job where they sat with these little pins with these cards the jacquard method punching out the pattern from the gridded image. Mm-hmm. In addition to the pictures in the mill of the mill itself, um, for example, in particular, maybe I, I think both of the major factories 
Bigelow, Sanford, and Mohawk, but I maybe you struck most by the Mohawk pictures. Mohawk did a lot of um, recreational activities, and they put on these stage shows. There's this one uh, classic picture you have showing, I think it's five young women performing on uh, on the stage. And I, and I imagine these were women uh, from the mills, uh, but uh, they were able to you know, show off their their talents in uh, acting and singing and dancing. They had musical. They had an annual musical review. We've learned through our photo collection that they had a, a Christmas party every year, a holiday Christmas party for children at the Armory. All these events are very, very well documented in our photo collection. Um, every summer, that during the time the mills were closed down, they had a big carnival at Jollyland, which we now know as Shuttleworth Park, later mm-hmm. Mohawk Mills Park, or previously in between. Um, you know, despite the fact that there were no unions at the time, it appears as though in many ways that the mills did try to take very good care of their employees and their families. We also saw, Bob, the hospitals and the nurses and the doctor staff and, um, you know, that they had on, on all the time, um, probably because we also know that there were a lot of injuries, unfortunately, um, in the mills. Um, and a lot of people I know, my grandmother talked about more so in the machine shop Mm-hmm. Um, because what I love about our mills in Amsterdam, it, it was from fruit to nuts. Mm-hmm. Raw mm-hmm. wool was imported in. Raw, raw wool. Like the cheapest wool you could buy. Mm-hmm. Unbleached, uncleaned. And so it was the entire process. In addition, it wasn't like they called the loom repairman from Sears no. <laughs> to come in and repair a breakdown. They had their own machine shop. They made all the parts. They mm-hmm. repaired everything. So they dyed the yarn They in the dye house. To me, when you look at manufacturing today, any company, even somebody small like the Walter Elwood Museum, you know, we buy paper, we buy this, we buy pens. We don't make all those things. They almost made every single aspect of the process, which to mm-hmm. me is really amazing. And one thing I do recall from my dad and from his uh, union leader, uh, Tony Merdico, is that um, there were uh, considered to be good and bad places to work in the mill. I mean, um, it's a relative term, I suppose, but let's say the floor where they're doing the weaving, well, that's okay. But I remember a quote from Tony, again, when we interviewed him back in the year 1999 or so, he said, nobody wanted to work in the dye house, nobody. And the dye house was hot and it was dirty and, and uh, smelly. I mean, the dyes smelled, mm-hmm. the wool smelled. It was uh, not a very pleasant place to be. I also was told in the, in the wool room, which they called the carding rooms, that's where they took the raw wool and, you know, brought it down to be smooth through a long process of washing and carding. Um, I know the carding house was um, not where you wanted to work. We're talking with Ann Picconi, executive director of the Walter Elwood Museum of, of the Mohawk Valley, located at 100 Church Street in Amsterdam. Let me uh, change gears here. Uh, you wanted to get in some information on a spring uh, camp experience for young people, which is coming up at the museum? 
Sure. Yes, thank you. Um, the week after Easter, on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and I'm just going to peek at a calendar because you caught me off guard for a second there, Bob. Um, so that will be Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and that is April 7th, 8th, and 9th. We are going to have um, in our tradition that's been going on for many, many years, since the 1990s, we're going to have a camp for kids, um, and we're um, going to be making soap and making paper and doing clay. But the one thing that we're going to do every day that I wanted to mention on your podcast was that we are beginning a mural on the creek wall in the large children's room that um, we just had Mohawk Carpet donate all brand new carpets, carpet squares, mm -hmm. colorful carpet squares. We're going to do a whole mural on that wall um, in tribute to Amsterdam's industrial past, Amsterdam's mm -hmm. Native American Mohawk Iroquois past, um, kind of a past, present, and future mural. And we're inviting all the children and students of the region and of Amsterdam to come and um, help us um, begin this mural. Mm -hmm. Also, um, I wanted to bring up with you today uh, the story of a man named Robert Frothingham. It is the Elwood Museum, named for Walter Elwood, who was a school teacher and much more in uh, Amsterdam. Uh, he was a world traveler. He was a... Uh, he had worked at one time, I think, for Oscar Hammerstein, the first or the second, uh, mm -hmm. taught in the Philippines, collected a lot of the objects that are shown at the Walter Elwood Museum himself. But at some point, he augmented this collection uh, by speaking with uh, the widow of uh, another world traveler, a man who had his summer home up uh, in the uh, Adirondacks, and that's Robert Frothingham. Can you tell us a bit about Robert Frothingham. Sure, Robert Frothingham. Actually, um, Walter was very smart um, to know. I mean, Robert Frothingham was really Walter's elder. Uh, Frothingham died in 37. We know Walter died in 55, 1955. Um, I believe that Walter looked up to Robert, but Robert it was a very, very different person than Walter. I think Walter, by 1937, which is when he approached Minnie Yurden Frothingham, originally from a prominent family in Fort Plain. Um, he did approach her and asked her for Robert's trophy, quote-unquote, collection. Um, Robert has a home called Topside, and it actually is still in the family, on Mountain Road up in the town of Northampton. I have been there. It's a beautiful home that Robert built in the early 30s. Um, I think Walter knew that Walter was kind of a tree hugger. He was a conservationist. He was an environmentalist. But, Bob, he wasn't a hunter. Mm -hmm. um, that wasn't his forte. And he knew that he needed Robert's collection to kind of fill out the missing holes and gaps. Sure, Walter had a lot of rocks and fossils and bird eggs and um, some taxidermied items that he mainly got from dead animals or roadkill or animals found dead in nature. Um, Robert was a member of the 
um, Nature Club of New York City. He presented there many times. He was a member of the Circumnavigators Club, meaning people who went up, took a trip around the world. Um, he was uh, a member of a lot of different hunting clubs and field clubs and people who went out um, with a guide and went on a big hunt, which always reminded me of that movie. I see Robert Frothingham as kind of like this Robert Redford character in Out of Africa, if you remember okay. that movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. I really kind of see him in that image. Um, <clears throat> but yes, um, the story goes, and I don't know if there's any truth to this, is that Walter attended Robert's funeral uh, early in December of 1937 and actually approached Minnie at somewhere during the funeral proceedings mm-hmm. and asked for his trophy collection, which was pretty much all housed in the guest house um, of the Topside Vacation Home. Mm. And um, amazingly, she gave it all to the museum. I think she trusted Walter. Mm. And some of the things, I remember going to the Elwood Museum when I was a kid, I thought they were Mr. Elwood's, but some of these things that a lot of people remember were really Frothingham's. And I hope I'm right on this one. The elephant's foot, for example, that came from Frothingham. We, you know, it's really kind of a secret. You're absolutely correct. Much of the memorable items in our collection, oddly, are not from Walter. Um, The moose. Uh, the walrus with the 13-inch ivory tusks, the anteater, the monkey, the no. polar bear rug, the brown gri- grizzly bear rug. Yep. Um, all of those are all um, came from the Frothingham collection. And what people don't know is we have a tremendous slide collection. Um, Frothingham documented every single trip he ever went on, whether it was a hunting trip, wherever he was going. And we have his entire slide collection, which I must tell you, some of them look like they were taken by Ansel Adams. That's how beautiful the photographs are. What I think is so priceless about this slide collection, and I've always wanted to do something with it, um, you know, do a coffee book, a coffee table book of of his images, um, you know, picking the best ones, is that when he traveled to these places, in the teens, 20s, and 30s. They looked, they were unchartered territory, Bob. They were places that look very differently now. Mm. Uh, I have a couple of his slides, or the museum has a couple of slides, of um, when the Brooklyn Bridge was being built in New York City, mm. which is really interesting. Yeah. And he made his money, uh, well, he was in, in newspapers, and he was a publisher, and. But it also it was maybe it was mainly advertising. He made posters for. Um... He was mainly advertising. He was born in Wisconsin um, in 1865. His father was a minister, and there was a tremendous amount of pressure for Robert to become a minister. Um, he his mother died when he was young. He had four siblings, and he kind of really upset his father um, when he decided to not go in. ministry Mm. Um, and um, he took a job in Philadelphia uh, to make money and he was a printer's devil Uh, Mm -hmm. that's what his father called him Um, he said he spent his life with the good smell of printer's ink in his nostrils 
Um, then he learned telegraphy, which I think is telegraphs. He worked in uh, for Western Union for some time. Um, and he came to visit his uncle, Reverend Washington Frothingham. Oh, I was going to ask. He is... Because uh, I, I just had that sort of unconfirmed, but his... But Washington Frothingham, who lived up in Fonda, was uh, well known as a journalist, as a preacher, and philanthropist. Well, that was up yep. There. That was Robert's uncle. So he came to visit him in about 1884 in Fonda, and that's where he met and fell in love with Minnie Yurden. Oh, is that right? Well, that makes sense. And she and was I the schoolmaster's Unfortunately, you can't make sense of time sometimes, Anne. We're almost out of uh, time. Have about a, a minute, minute and a half left. Uh, just want to uh, leave word with the uh, folks listening about the Elwood Museum and where you are and when you're open and things like that. Uh, uh, where are you, for example? Well, we uh, finally have a new home since all those nasty flood disasters of 2011. We are in the former Noteworthy building at 100 Church Street, which was formerly the Stephen Sanford & Sons Carpet Mills, a.k.a. Bigelow Sanford Carpet Mills. Um, at 100 Church Street, uh, just up from the corner of Prospect, directly across from the historic Green Hill Cemetery. If people wanted to reach you about when you're open and, and so forth, uh, you have a website, correct? Phone number? We have a website. Our phone number is 518-843-5151. We are typically open Monday through Friday from 9 to 4, um, but I am the only paid staff member of the museum, so if I'm at a meeting or out and about, so I always suggest people to call first, let me know you're coming, I'll get the lights on, get the rooms warmed up. I'm always um, excited well, Anne, about I'm, giving I'm a sorry, we're, we're just out of time. It's a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bob. Ann Piccone is Executive Director, the Walter Elwood Museum of the Mohawk Valley in Amsterdam. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.